All right. Hello and welcome to the Yet Another Value podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Walker. And uh, today I'm excited to try something new and do my first threesome. I've got two people on the pod. I've got Matt Rosen and uh, Dan Schneeberger. Is that right? Schneeberger? Yeah, that's right. Great. Well, it's great. Guys, how are you doing? Andrew, my real last name is not Rosen. Is it really? I, You know, lock, lock Twitter account. I just uh, assumed it was the your real last name. So Yeah, I'm not, I'm not shy about the real last name. My last name is Turk. Oh, Matt Turk. That's right. That's right. Uh, perfect. Well, Matt Turk and Dan Schneeberger, great. Thanks for coming on. Uh, let me start the pod the way I do every podcast, and that's by pitching the two of you. Uh, you know, it's a little tough to pitch two guys at the same time, but what I can say is Matt and I have kind of converse over just Twitter for a couple of years. And it's been a real pleasure. Uh, I think sometimes profitable, sometimes not so profitable, but uh, Matt's a really sharp guy, really sharp investor. And it's been a lot of fun. Dan, I actually kind of only discovered you a couple of weeks ago when, uh, you know, I was looking at this Bristol Myers contingent value right we're going to talk about, but the amount of work and your understanding of the CBR have been incredible. So it's just uh, great to have been, it's been great to follow you guys. It's great to have you guys both on. Uh, that out the way, maybe you guys can dive into your background a little bit. Maybe Dan, do you want to start and dive a little into your background and how you came to be here? You're going to make me follow Dan. <laughs> you can go first if you want. Sure. So, um, you know, I've been an investor for mo- most of my life. It started when I was 14. It was uh, back in '98, where you know I sort of got uh, sucked in into the dot com bubble. You know, probably much uh, as uh, many new traders nowadays. And, you know, it's been a wild ride uh, over 22 years. Um, in, in the meantime, you know, I've completed a medical degree um, in, in Switzerland and an MBA in the U.S. Uh, did some consulting at McKinsey, did an internship, I mean, sorry, residency in internal medicine. And, um, you know, most recently I was working at a long short uh, biotech fund here in Texas before uh, starting my own shop. Uh, early last year, and uh, I, I mostly do healthcare slash biotech uh, binary events and uh, um, so special opportunities. Perfect. So that's what I'm focused on, and you know I have a little bit of an obsession with this Celgene uh, uh, CVR, um, and um, you know Matt has as well. So it's great to be on the podcast and have the opportunity to discuss the situation. All right, so Matt, we've got a uh, an MBA, former McKinsey consultant, doctor helping to analyze this contingent value, right? What are your credentials for analyzing this CVR? The only thing I have on uh, and Dan is that I started investing when I was 13. <laughs> and then uh, apparently after 13, though, Dan has me beat across the board. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I've been investing since my bar mitzvah. And uh, just I love the stock market. I've always been passionate about the stock market. Um, after uh, I graduated from Tulane, actually, I know Andrew, you're from New Orleans, right? Hello, Tulane alum. Yeah. Oh, I forgot you actually went to Tulane. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So after I graduated from Tulane, uh, in 2001, which was right after, uh, right in the heart of the recession, um, my, actually not to be a downer, my first day of work was nine 11, uh, at, uh, Spear Leeds and Kellogg, which was, uh, by that time owned by Goldman Sachs. And it was a few blocks away from the world trade center. Wow. Um, everybody I know was fine. I was fine. I ended up getting three or four weeks off from work after all I wanted to do was start my trading career. Um, I worked at Spear Leads for a year and then I joined a, uh, a hedge fund that I worked for three years called Brahmin Capital and uh, left that to co-found my own hedge fund um, in 2006. 
that was great for a little bit and then uh, not so great for a little bit and shut that down right before the financial crisis, actually, uh, in 2008, but before it. Uh, I can't blame the financial crisis for why we shut it down. <laughs> and uh, since uh, 2008, I've just been managing my own money from my uh, couch in San Diego. Um, I've been doing it for about 12 years now, and I focus mostly on special situations. Um, I have no biotech background, but I have been involved in biotechs in the past. And Twitter knows, I think, that I used to be really passionate about Sarepta back in the day. So I kind of uh, was trial by fire for me learning about biotech through Sarepta. Um, after that, I feel like everything's a piece of cake. Oh, but, uh, Twitter, I, Twitter knows about Sarepta, you and Sarepta. But uh, look, so we've got a, uh, a doctor, MBA, former consultant, and a uh, pajamas trader. So this should be a, this should be a great conversation. So Matt, you didn't want to- I, sh- I put on a new shirt for you for today. We appreciate it. Uh, so Matt, you didn't want to go second there. So maybe you can go first here. Just- um, Maybe you can discuss, so the, the thing we want to talk about today is the Bristol-Myers CVR. Uh, it was issued when they acquired Celgene. And I'm just going to go ahead and disclaim that, you know, CVRs are extremely risky. They can absolutely, there's absolutely a chance that this thing goes to zero. You know, we all hope this uh, this doesn't, but this is this is a podcast. It's not investing advice. So I'm just going to go disclaim that out, that out the way. Matt, why don't you explain what a CVR is and how kind of the Bristol-Myers CVR came into existence? Sure. So I love CVRs. Most CVRs um, are not tradable. This is a tradable, publicly traded CVR. So first I'll explain what CVRs are and why they exist. And then I'll explain this one in particular. But CVRs exist when a company, uh, uh, two companies are, are in negotiations for a merger and they can't agree on a certain price for a specific asset. And maybe the buyer thinks it's worth 10 and the seller thinks it's worth uh, 20 and they're out of bind. And usually these assets are biotech related. Um, they could be for approvals, they could be for sales milestones, um, they could be for successful phase three trials, they could be for really anything where the buyer and seller in the middle of a, of a, of a merger negotiation can't come to agreement. And you get this CVR upon closing, and let's say the CVR pays $3 for FDA approval of drug XYZ, when the uh, merger closes, uh, you get the CVR deposited into your account. It doesn't trade most of the time. And sometime in the next X years, uh, there's usually a deadline that you have. If that drug is approved, you get the $3. If the drug isn't approved, you get nothing. Um, I'm attracted to these because there's very few accounts that can hold this. Uh, It's hard to market. Uh, Sometimes it takes years before you get a conclusion. this, this Bristol-Myers CVR is rather different. Uh, it's publicly traded. So when the merger closed with Celgene and Bristol-Myers last year, uh, shareholders of Celgene got cash, stock in Bristol-Myers, and they got one of these CVRs. This CVR is worth $9 only if three milestones are hit, and they're all hit by a specific date, Okay. The first milestone was something called Ozonimab, which is a drug that was already approved in March. So that's done. We don't even have to talk about it. It's done. It's in the bag. It's irrelevant. The other two milestones are two drugs uh, that this is, Daniel can talk all about the biotech side of this, but they're two drugs uh, in the CAR-T umbrella that one's called Lysocell and one's called Idacell. And Lysocell has to be approved by uh, December 31st of this year. And Lyso, and excuse me, an Idacell has to be approved by March 31st of next year. 
if they both get approved by those deadlines, you get $9. Currently, the CVR is trading at $2.01. So you can see the stock market saying there's less than a 25% chance that this happens. No, that's a, that's a perfect background. So uh, no, that's perfect. Maybe Dan, can you dive into, so Lysocell and Idocell are the, the two kind of main hurdle servers. Hurdlestones. Obviously, you guys are both bullish on the CVR. Uh, you know, why do you think the, these two drugs are going to get approved? Sure. So, you know, happy to talk about that. But I think you know, there's there are two or three things that I wanted to add to what Matt said about CVRs. Yeah, go for it. You know, I, I like them for for similar reasons, and I think you know, there there are. I think the way I invest is I always try to you know look for underpriced or mispriced assets. And I think, you know, there, there are a lot of reasons to believe why this CVR, you know, uh, when the Celgene merger closed was underpriced compared, you know, to the, to the probable payoff. And I think one of those reasons is, you know, that the track record of CVRs really isn't that great. If you look yeah. at all CVRs ever issued, you know, I, I think about 20% of all milestones or payouts have been met. But I think you know you have to um, you have to differentiate what those uh, you know CVRs exactly were, and most of the CVRs that didn't pay out were linked to you know overly optimistic sales milestones, uh, you know, and, and we, we we know that that you know uh, for instance for for any kind of drug launch sell side estimates usually are too high in about eighty percent of cases, that's so, you know why a lot of people short those drug launches. And, uh, you know, that's one of the reasons why CVRs have such a bad track record. Here in this case, uh, you don't really have to worry about sales. You know, those are regulatory milestones. And in the past few years, we've seen, you know, FDA that was very permissive and, you know, was, was very much on top of especially oncology, rare disease and sort of breakthrough medicines, you know, and got them approved in record number and record time. So, uh, you know, and... That was the reason why I got involved with the CVR. It was also, and it was pretty complex to analyze because going into this, you had three um, milestones that you had to meet. So, you know, yep. there was a lot to analyze. So I, I thought very few people would be willing uh, to do that work and own the CVR and underwrite that kind of risk of a security, you know, that potentially can, can go to zero. So I think, you know, there were a lot of reasons to believe why this was an underpriced security. And, um, you know, I, I started looking at all those drugs individually and, you know, what was very easy to analyze for all those drugs is, at least for me, is safety and efficacy. You know, there was no question for me that all those drugs um, are safe and efficacious in their indications and, you know, should ultimately get approved uh, by the FDA. So at this point, and, you... At this point, we've seen the phase three data for these drugs and everything. Is that right? Uh, we yeah. I mean, we we've seen pivotal data for all those. Um, can I can I add one thing, Dan? Of course. I I just want to add the reason why the CVR exists. So it's easy to look back why Celgene and Bristol Myers had this. So when the time this merger was announced, the three assets: Ozanamod, Idacel, and Lysacel. Ozanamod was currently hasn't even hadn't been refiled yet and previously got a refused to file letter under Celgene. So there was hair on it. Okay. 
nobody knew exactly why the refuse to file letter happened. Um, Selgene was pretty open about it. And it seemed like it, the refiling was going to be fine. But that's why that drug was put into this basket. Yep. Lysocell and Idacell hadn't had their pivotal data readouts yet. Uh, they came in December of 2019. And this CVR was created in January 2019. So the reason why Bristol-Myers put those in the, in the bucket is because they hadn't read out their, their pivotal studies. When Dan and I started looking at the security, I don't know actually when Dan started looking at it, but I didn't look at it until after December. It started trading in November. Um, I didn't look at it until after both of those top lines read out. And it was pretty much consensus that the safety and efficacy were provable for those two drugs. So, so the skeptic would say, why did Bristol-Myers even have the CVR if they were so sure these three drugs were going to get approved? Well, they weren't back in January of 2019 yep. because all three of them either didn't have their pivotal data or had hair on them. And today, well, there's been some hair this year, but when, you looked, when we looked at it in December and January, it was a much different picture. So anyway. No, that's perfect. Look, you, you guys keep going. You, you guys have this. Y'all, y'all are doing great. Uh, you know, what do you think about Lysol and Idisol at this point? Sure. So I think we should probably start uh, talking about Lysol first because mm-hmm. it's probably right now, um, you know, the the next catalyst for, um, you know, for, for the CVR, you know, the, the next really big and uncertain catalyst, I would say, that people are worried about. So Lysol is a, a CAR T therapy. It's a, it's a cell therapy where you take cells from, you know, the patient, you genetically modify them with a, with a virus in the lab, and then, you know, you expand them and you put them back into the patient, and those cells start attacking the, the tumor that the patient is suffering from. And lysocell is, um, um, you know, was, the, is, uh, developed in, was developed in diffuse large cell, uh, large B cell lymphoma, and... Um, we already have two CAR Ts that are approved for that indication, and I think you know there, some people believe that the lysocell is not uh, differentiated, but it, it appears you know to have best-in-class safety and efficacy. Uh, you know, so especially the safety is actually uh, you know remarkably better, and uh, it, it is so good that in certain cases it can even be probably administered to outpatients, which will save a lot of cost to the system, and. Uh, you know, I mean, we, we had a lot of discussions about that, you know, talk to regulatory experts, and it is believed that the FDA does not view this as fur to market and, you know, has, has really, you know, really thinks that this is an important application. There are some complexities here around manufacturing. Uh, you know, uh, already approved CAR-Ts are much easier to manufacture here uh, you know, Bristol Myers or uh, you know Juno, they actually separate the two different types of T cells, the CD4 and the CD8 positive T cells, expand them separately, and and, and you know administer you know administer them to the patient separately. So it is a more complex product, and it seems like you know the whole CMC or the manufacturing aspect of it was more complex, and you know that plus certain. Um, um, you know, maybe deficiencies in the initial application have led to a so-called three-month extension where originally the drug was supposed to be approved back in August, but the FDA has extended that time frame by three months and has now said uh, November 16th, Padufa, which is the date 
by which by 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 statute, you know, they have to make their decision whether they approve the drug or mm-hmm. not. And uh, historically speaking, you know, this is uh, this is something that's positive because the FDA doesn't, you know, easily give those three month extensions. They only do that when they believe that there's an issue that can be addressed in those three months and will ultimately, you know, result in a successful approval. So, you know, I think that that is a positive signal. And we've also heard, you know, from uh, at, at City last week from. Uh, Bristol Myers, executive VP and chief medical officer, mm-hmm. uh, side here that uh, thus far our discussions with the FDA, uh, we are very encouraged by the way they have looked at it, and so that is all going in a good direction, which you know I interpret as you know that the, the regular review of that drug, the safety, efficacy, and CMC review are going well, and you know I always thought that CMC reviews uh, is the biggest. Uh, biggest risk here. So I'm very encouraged by those comments. But what the other issue is, and I think why, you know, why the CVR sold off so much is that there are logistical risks around the FDA inspection right now. That, you know, normally, in a normal world without COVID, uh, the inspections for such products take place very early on in the review cycle, you know, usually about three to four months uh, after the finding. And here, uh, we know that they haven't happened yet as of last week. And that is due to COVID-related travel restrictions. And, uh, you know, I think that's what people worry about right now. I don't know, Matt, do you want to continue expanding on that? Go ahead, Matt. Um, You know, what I would add, I think that was a really good summary of the situation, is that um, the major amendment only happens about 10% of the time uh, and it never really happens as early as it happened here. So usually it happens within a month of the PDUFA deadline and the FDA needs more time to get it over the finish line for the first review cycle. Um, It actually says in the statute exactly what Dan said, that they only give major amendments if they think it's going to lead to approval in this review cycle. What was odd here was it happened in uh, early May with an August, you know, 21st PDUFA date. And I can't find it that a time that's ever happened before. So there's all sorts of theories behind this, that maybe the FDA was buying themselves more time because of COVID to be able to do inspections, because you can do inspections in May and April, in, in June and in, uh, uh, July. Um, another thing that uh, Dan didn't mention was that the previous CAR-Ts, the two that have been approved, both were approved five to six weeks early from the PDUFA date and never had a major amendment. So that would have put Lysacel being approved in the middle, beginning of July, um, which, which I think Dan has actually referenced to me uh, privately, means that when that major amendment happened early May, it was actually very far along in the review process, if you think about it, because they're probably wanting an accelerated review, just like the other CAR-Ts, and they were expecting approval in early July. So an early May uh, major amendment isn't as bizarre under that context. Um, as far as the inspections go, I think what the market, and this really, we have to focus most of our time on the inspections because that really is the big issue right now. I think what the market's missing is that we have data points over the last two months of how the FDA is conducting ins- inspections, whether they're conducting inspections, and nothing is abnormal with the way that this Bristol-Myers uh, review process is going. So for instance, uh, we know that a company called Fennec 
had a uh, PDUFA date in the middle of August and they got their drug rejected. Um, it's not breakthrough designation. And so breakthrough designation is, is a designation that uh, drugs get that are very important and, and uh, usually unmet needs. And both Lysocell and Idacell have breakthrough designation, which is the most important label you can have for a drug in the FDA. Um, so this drug, Fenicad, has no breakthrough designation and got rejected. But uh, it has been disclosed, not publicly, through private phone calls with the company, that they got their inspection about 30 days prior to that PDUFA date, which yep. is very close. That's very close to when you would normally do it. You would do it months probably in advance of that. So 30 days, this, this uh, PDUFA date for Lysocell is not until the third week of November, uh, which is like 75 days from now. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing we know is there were three other drugs approved in August. And uh, it's my understanding that all three of these drugs had inspections before they were approved. Uh, you can confirm it with uh, their investor relations. They won't give you details of when the inspections were. Do you remember what the drugs were, Dan? I, one, one was PTCT and what was the other one? I can't remember off the top of my head. Yeah, I think Roche had uh, two approvals and I think there was one other drug. So as far as, and then finally, the final thing that's very important about inspections is in, on July 20th, the FDA put out a press release saying they were going to continue, sorry, not continue, restart inspections in the country. And they were going to do it in a three-tiered fashion. Okay, the first tier is mission-critical drugs will be inspected everywhere. They do not define what mission-critical it is, but they says they will look at whether drugs have breakthrough designation and whether, or, so not and, or whether they're for an unmet need. Now that's the second part where it gets confusing with Lysocell because there's two drugs already on the market. But Dan and I would argue very strongly that this is a differentiated product that is better than both drugs on the market and actually will save lives. So Dan can get into this, but the safety of CAR-Ts is very, very important. The, the, of the two CAR-Ts on the market, the one that's the most efficacious has 2% of the patients die from the side effects, it's uh, called CRS. 2% of the 500 patients, nine, died in a post-approval study of that CAR-T. Whereas with Lysocell in its pivotal trial, with 300 patients, not a single patient died from CRS. We're talking about 2% chance of dying as a safety side effect um, for very, very sick patients. So this is not some minor headache or something that we're talking about with the side effects. Um, I, now I just totally lost my train of thought. No, why, why did I go was, down that path? Oh, that right. As far, sorry, the three different buckets. Yep. So the first bucket is mission critical drugs all get inspected. The second bucket is uh, non mission mission critical drugs uh, can be inspected depending on a multitude of factors. What COVID is like in the state, what COVID is like in the county, and uh, uh, I guess some importance of how the drug is, but they don't. They're not clear. And then the third bucket is uh, all clear, everything gets inspected, no COVID risk, whatever. So that was July 20th. On August uh, 28th, they put out a 12, you could find all this online by Googling. They put out, on August 28th, they put out a uh, draft guidance, which is being implemented immediately. So it's actual guidance that's, that's real today uh, about how they're going to deal with PDUFAs and manufacturing in the age of COVID. And there's a very important page here relating to Lysocell, mm -hmm. where it says if an inspection is needed, 
And we now know an inspection is needed here. Bristol Myers came out last week and said the FDA has told them an inspection is needed. And that is not uh, a red flag. Every one of our contacts told us over the last few months that because of the complexity of CAR-T, they would have to inspect these plants. Doesn't mean there's something wrong with the plants. In fact, these plants have never been inspected before. So there's no reason to believe there's any kind of red flag at the plants is why they need an inspection. But anyway, Bristol says they need an inspection. And in the guidance, it says, if you need an inspection and you can't do it due to COVID, there's two buckets the FDA is going to uh, follow most times. The first bucket is, if the FDA has a reason to believe that the facilities have a problem, I'll repeat, if they have a reason to believe the facilities have a problem, they are likely, and they can't inspect, they are likely to issue a complete response letter, which is jargon for rejecting the drug when the PDUFA day comes. The second bucket says, if there's simply inadequate information and they need to inspect, they're more likely then to delay the PDUFA and tell the company they need to inspect, but not reject it. Okay, this is very important for Lysocell because we have until December 31st for this drug to be approved. And the PDUFA date is November 17th. So in the event that the FDA can't inspect in the next eight weeks, I'll let Daniel explain why they might not be able to inspect in the next eight weeks. But it's very interesting where this is going um, and what happened here. But in the event they can't inspect, we have six more weeks of cushion before the CVR would be rendered worthless. Dan, do you want to tell them the reason why there's issues here? Just before you get there, let, let me just pause because you guys are very in the weeds and it's actually fantastic. Uh, like I've looked at this, but you guys are so much further than me. But let me just summarize for uh, listeners who might not be as in the weeds as you guys. What happens is there's a CVR. Specifically, we're talking about Lysocell. Lysocell got a major amendment in May that pushed its PDUFO date back from, uh, what was it? It was going to be in August. It pushed it to November, right? And right now we're talking about the risk. They need, basically, they got a uh, major amendment pushed it back by three months because they need an inspection of the facility. Right now we're talking about the risk that the facility isn't inspected. If the facility is inspected and everything's okay, this drug's almost certainly, I would say, getting approved. The risk here is that for some reason they can inspect it or there's an off chance they inspect it and find something wrong and the drug isn't approved by December 31st because if it's not approved by December 31st, the CVR is a zero. Am I just kind of summarizing all of that correctly? Yeah, most of it was correct. I think the only correction I make is that the three-month extension was not because they couldn't make the inspection. You know, uh, Bristol Myers has never disclosed why exactly it happened. We believe it has something to do with the CMC part of the review, and uh, you know, the FDA needing more time for that. Okay, perfect, perfect. So, uh, Dan, Matt kind of was leading you into why you uh, a, a little bit more on the safety and the inspection. Why don't you dive into that? Sure. So, you know, as we as we said. You know, in, in, in a non-COVID world, this inspection would have happened a long time ago. It probably would have happened in, in March or April. And, you know, my assumption is that it actually was scheduled for March or April, but they had to postpone it due to, you know, COVID. Uh, you know, as, as things were pretty bleak uh, back then. Um, you know, so the FDA strategy so far was to um, schedule those inspections, you know, sort of as late as possible in the review. Uh, you know, with the hope that COVID would, you know, from, from a trend point of view, get directionally better, right? And it would be safer for those inspectors to travel out there. So, you know, as as Matt mentioned, we, for instance, know from from Fennec that 
that their PDU, uh, you know, their inspection just happened 30 days prior to the PDUFA. The drug was rejected, but that had nothing to do, you know, with you know the FDA's ability or inability to inspect those facilities. Um, and you know, so far we also know that the FDA has not really missed a lot of PDUFA days. Days, in fact, they have met them. Uh, they have not met the PDUFA days for you know a very small biotech company called Lipocene, which is developing a oral testosterone uh, replacement, so testosterone tablet basically. But that was not due to uh, you know the inability to inspect. In fact, you know, I, I suspect that it uh, it has something to do with. Um, regulatory exclusivity there where the FDA doesn't know whether by their statute they are allowed to approve this drug because another drug, you know, oral T-pill was approved 18 months ago. And now the question is, you know, is this pill di different enough from the other pill, uh, you know, for them to be able to approve it? And I believe that liposine had to present in front of the exclusivity panel and, and this whole discussion hasn't been resolved yet. And that's the reason for the delay. Uh, and, you know, we are aware of one company that actually got a CRL uh, because the FDA could not inspect the facility. That was a, a small biotech called Nebriva that is working on an antibiotic. But there, you know, there were two issues. One, they already had a CRL a couple of years ago for the facility and it was the resubmission. And two, the facility was located in Europe, you know, and, and, and at the time with the travel restrictions, it was not even clear when or how the FDA could reinspect that plant. So they got a CRL for that. And I would add, I'd add, both of those drugs don't have breakthrough designation. The, the company that missed the PDUFA date is a little $50 million market cap that's been CRL twice before. And again, nothing to do with inspections. Yep. Um, uh, these two drugs, Lysosol and Idosol, could not be more kind of life-saving, uh, last-of-line treatments for patients. I don't, we haven't really touched on that yet, but... This is the end of the road for both of these uh, indications. Um, uh, there's no other treatments, really. Is that true, Dan? I mean, after this, if, 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 if these drugs fail for the most part. Right. So, you know, I think normally what would happen now, based on everything that we've observed from other companies, is that the FDA will probably schedule inspection four to six weeks prior to the PDUFA date, travel there, inspect the facilities, and, you know, eventually approve. But... From what we've learned last week at City, you know, it's it's even more complicated than that, as that you know our country is in those extraordinary times now with, with COVID, uh, where you know we have this Operation Warp Speed or this heroic effort, mm -hmm. you know, to get a COVID vaccine to market as quickly as possible, and uh, you know, uh, Bristol Myers has disclosed that some of the people. This is not, not from the review team, not from the oncology team, but some people that were actually, you know, supposed to work on that inspection that they might get pulled into COVID vaccine-related uh, facility inspections. So, you know, what I suspect is going on is that they have something scheduled, you know, a few weeks from now where the FDA inspectors are supposed to travel uh, to those two sites that need to be inspected but right now, the, you know, the FDA has also told them that there's some, some risk around that, uh, you know, that, that some of those people might be needed for vaccine inspections, which, you know, the FDA, due to political pressure, might prioritize over, over lysosome inspections. Yep. 
No, that's per that's perfect. And then why don't you, it, it, Matt? You were kind of tossing over Sam. Why don't you talk about uh, why Lysocell is, is so critical? The why you think the FDA, you know, it's breakthrough. Obviously, why you think the FDA is going to prioritize inspecting this? Well, there's only uh, besides the vaccines. If you look at the uh, the calendar for the for the next few months for the FDA and specifically for oncology and the uh, uh, the division that that oversees this, it's very light. And uh, uh, there's not a lot of drugs. Uh, Lysocell, in fact, is probably the most important one between now and the end of November when it has its PDUFA date. So we're not talking about dozens of breakthrough designation drugs that need to be inspected. In fact, uh, Dan was looking at this this weekend. I think priority review is a six-month review versus a 10-month review. And, and all breakthrough designation products get priority yep. review. We've never found one that hasn't. So Dan just looked at just how many priority reviews are up in the next three months. And I think, Dan, you only found four or five drugs that are up for approval, I think, between now and the end of November. Um, and I, I, I didn't think any of them were as important uh, as Lysocell. The, the, one of the most important parts about Lysocell being differentiated is usually when uh, uh, one or two competing products go to market and uh, something that's still in the clinical phase has breakthrough designation, the FDA can pull breakthrough designation. You don't have to keep, they don't make you keep it. So if the FDA thought that this was not a differentiated, uh, important product, not only would they pull the breakthrough designation, but they wouldn't have given it priority review in the first place come uh, last February. Um, the, the clinical data is pretty clear about this, that it's as efficacious as the CAR-T on the market, CAR-Ts on the market, but it's also the safest CAR-T on the market. So, um, uh, I feel very strongly that the FDA knows this. Bristol Myers has said the FDA uh, uh, knows this. Um, the really only question is, do they get pulled each way for the vaccines and can they not make it to the plants? Uh, my working theory is similar to what Dan's is, is that uh, they, have, they have been told, Bristol Myers has been told that they have inspections coming, whether it's in the end of September or early October, um, Bristol Myers does not want to get into a game where they have to update the market every week about whether there's inspections. Did the inspections happen? Did they find something bad during the inspections? It's a terrible road to go down every day having phone calls with, you know, mm -hmm. with, uh, investors. So what they did was they decided to come out last week and say, this is the situation. We need inspections. We're not going to tell you if they're scheduled. We're never going to tell you anything ever again, actually, unless we want to. But the only thing you should expect going forward, this is actually what they said, is it's approved, it's rejected, or they'll miss the PDUFA date. If any of those three things happens, expect disclosure. If those three things don't happen, we're not telling you. And the market really freaked out, but it was a pretty smart thing for them to do. Because, and then the, I, the reason why I think an inspection is, is, is scheduled is I thought it was very odd that Bristol-Myers disclosed the vaccine side of the risk. Because if the FDA comes to Bristol-Myers and says, hey, guys, we don't know if we're going to be able to inspect or not because of COVID, it seems odd they would then say, also, by the way, once we have a, a scheduled inspection, we might have to pull our guys for vaccines. It seems much more likely they said, we're planning on coming at the end of September, middle of October. We have absolutely no idea what's going to happen with these vaccine trials and with what plants we might need to inspect. Yep. Just want to let you know there's a risk that we do pull, and then we have to change the date. Um, you know, that's, that's what I think. Um, <laughs> Dan, do you know if the plant inspectors, like if I'm, cause CAR-T is obviously a very specialized, uh, manufacturer, if I'm the inspector for the, the CAR-T plant, it, like, 
am I the same person who would be inspecting a uh, inspecting a COVID vaccine plant, or is that generally a completely different group? Like, you know, is it silo- siloed groups, and the only reason they'd be taking these guys off is kind of last thing, hey, we need to inspect 20 different COVID vaccine plants at the same time. Does that make sense? Yeah, so um, you were breaking up there a little bit. I think I, I got the gist of your question. So, um, you know, I, I think we are not, not 100% certain how the FDA, you know, is, is organized internally and, and, and how they, you know, which groups would be inspecting which plans. My understanding, you know, just based on biology would be that, you know, you, you, you have some people that are, for, you know, specialized more, you know, on, on production, let's say, on, you know, of, of drug products with cell-based systems. And, you know, we have some vaccines that require that, um, you know, and I assume that's probably where the overlap would be with uh, the people that would inspect um, the CAR-T facilities. And importantly to know, you know, I, I think the front runners right now are uh, Pfizer and BioNTech and Moderna, and those are all, you know, RNA vaccines, which are basically, you know, the RNA synthesized. It's not a cell-based manufacturing system. That having said, we, we don't know how exactly, you know, the plans of DA look like, and it's reasonable to believe, you know, that those plans would be inspected when they're ready, you know, from a, from a manufacturing compliance and CMC mm-hmm. perspective as to versus the, when the clinical trials actually read out. So I think, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty there. And I think, you know, the FDA statements and Bristol statements reflect the, that uncertainty, frankly. Uh, that having said, you know, Bristol also very clear that the FDA is aware of potential scheduling conflicts and they try to work in parallel. And, you know, I think what really spooked the market was the fact that those risks were so emphasized by, by Bristol Myers. But I think, and I think, you know, we as investors are not used to hearing those kind of statements from companies. And, you know, but normally companies care about their stock price, you know, by the companies because, they need access to capital, you know. So if this was, a, you know, small, another smaller mid-cap biotech, uh, you know, they wouldn't have highlighted those risks. They would have said, they would have told us, you know, we're very confident in approval by Padufa. Yep. That would have been the statement. Here, you know, we have the CVR that is basically a $7 billion liability. And if it doesn't pay out, you know, shareholder lawsuits are 100% likely. Like literally the risk of that is 100%. So I think they have to prepare all their statements with that in mind and, you know, just highlight all the risks more than anything else. And, you know, as investors, I think we're not used to that. This is a security where we all know there's a lot of risk. It can go to zero or, you know, litigation value which is probably, I don't know, 10 or 20 cents above zero. Um, so, you know, I, I think that that's why investors reacted the way they did. And they sent down, you know, the CVR from $2.80 to $1.80 uh, last week. And, um, you know, again, I think that's the reason. It really actually went from 360 to $1.80 because it started going down when in the early August, Bristol yep. uh, Myers disclosed on a private call uh, with a sell cider uh, that they hadn't been inspected. Lysosol hadn't been inspected yet. And then it really never recovered from that private call. Um, and that's what got them in the bond. So this security has been littered with selective disclosures by Bristol Myers and Bluebird having private uh, uh, sell side chats and giving updates along the way from May to today. And I think the last week's call was public. Uh, It was a dial-in number uh, and a webcast, but they're not all webcasts. And I think Bristol-Myers finally nipped it in the butt, and that's why they they issued that disclosure. 
Um, I'd like to add one real quick thing that's not uh, yeah. uh, uh, before I forget. A very, a very, very bullish part of what came out last week was the FDA saying they need to inspect. A lot of people might have interpreted that as negative, thinking, oh, they might have, it might be a problem. That's why they need to inspect. But something happened in August that um, is a real tell. In August, Biomarin uh, was applying, well, was near the end of its PDUFA for its gene therapy drug, which is under the same umbrella as the, these CAR-Ts. Uh, it's not oncology, but it's the same group that does the inspections. And um, they rejected the drug uh, at the end of July. Importantly, Biomarin never had their facility inspected when they got it rejected. And uh, uh, they would have definitely needed an inspection. It's, it's a novel drug that, in a facility that never had anything approved before. Why didn't the FDA inspect? Well, it seems pretty obvious in hindsight. COVID's ramp was, you know, is, is ramping everywhere. And it was in Orange County, LA area. Um, and the FDA didn't want to send its inspectors into a COVID hot zone when they were rejecting the drug. So fast forward to Bristol-Myers and Lysocell, and we're definitely done with the review process at this point. Uh, you know, the PDUFA date was in August, and it got pushed in November. And I'm very confident that they're done with everything but the inspections. And they've told Bristol-Myers, we need to inspect your facilities. They wouldn't go in to inspect if they've already found a problem with either the yep. CMT from the documentation or with the, uh, uh, the safety efficacy of the drug. So that's a huge tell uh, that, that it's, you know, it's, it's queued up to be improved pending these inspections. Dan, maybe talk a little bit about the risk of the inspections and uh, how risky they are and what you think about that from that perspective. Yeah. Sure. So, you know, um, the way the inspection works is that you, you, you know, you have a number of people, most of the time four or five, they, they, they go to the plant, they spend anywhere between three and five days, days there, and you know, they, they go through all the documentation, they, they, they look at the way uh, the drug is being manufactured, you know, they, they tour the facility, they even you know, look for rodents in the cafeteria. Uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty, um, pretty uh, extensive list of things that they go through or, or you know, need to check off on. You say rodents in the cafeteria. That happens. Yes. Like, I don't know if you ever looked at Acorn, but they, they were finding, if I remember correctly, uh, Fresnius broke the lawsuit because they, the FDA was finding, like, literally cockroaches in, the, uh, in their mixes and everything. Yeah, yeah. I'm familiar with that. So, <laughs> uh, how it works in practice is, you know, that at, at the end of the day, uh, you know, at, at the end of every day, the lead inspector gives you know senior management on site a, a summary of the findings, and when they're you know done with the physical inspection before they leave, they um, give you a summary of everything they they found. You know they they give you this um, uh, preliminary 483 uh, form, and you know it, it, it mostly has you know their findings on it, and um, it's, it's important that you know I would expect. Both Bristol Myers, you know, at, at their Balfour Washington facility, as well as their vector manufacturer in Texas, to receive a 483, I think it's quite likely. Um, you know, I, I looked at the two already approved CARTs and all the vector manufacturers that were inspected. You had a total of five inspections, which has resulted in five 483. So, you know, the 483 might come. We might hear about it. It's it's nothing to you know be, be freaked out about, um, 
because you know what what happens as a result of 483 is that as a company you have up to 15 days to respond to that in writing and you know the, the response is basically you don't have to resolve those issues you just need to present you know a root cause analysis you know why did those things happen and how you know and, and, and sort of convey how you're planning to address it right and and that's what's required and then uh, you know once uh, the inspector gets your report or your, your your written statement you know he will do one of two things he will either you know recommend approval or say that you know the the state of the facility at this time uh, you know um, isn't 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 good enough and and he's he recommends withholding the approval those are the two things that can happen and you know in case of of the five inspections that we had for CAR-T products uh, that's what happened in every every single case yeah. you know 483 company or you know manufacturer responded response was deemed satisfactory and you know the inspector recommended approval do I remember correctly a 483? I mean, an insight could be as simple as, hey, we saw a lab technician who didn't wash his hands, right? And then the company will just say, we will post a sign that says employees must wash their hands. Or it could be as complicated as you said as, hey, there are rats running around through the entire facility. Am I, am I remembering that correctly? That's correct, yes. And, and you know, to be clear, there are 483s that can be pretty bad. It can easily be, be, be addressed. You yes. know, where actually, the inspectors will, will say, you know, I recommend withholding the approval at this point, you know, and the company receives a CRL and needs to resubmit. That can happen. I've seen that happen, you know. So would I be well, one risk? One risk you is that because most of these inspections in non-COVID world happen earlier on in the review cycle, it gives them a much longer time to respond to any problems that arise. So let's say they inspect now in the middle or the end of October. We don't have any reason to believe they're going to wait that long, but maybe they do, and maybe they find some problems. And maybe they're not super minor and FDA decides come November 17th, I think is the PDUFA date. We're not going to give you any more time. This is the PDUFA date. We're rejecting the drug. You have to refile. Um, so that's a real risk. Uh, I, I, I don't believe that will happen. Um, I don't believe the FDA is working against Bristol-Myers. They, they, they have the same goal to get this drug to patients just like Bristol-Myers does. So I think, uh, uh, in fact, Dan, why don't you tell them about what you found out about the inspection on that company in July and August and how it was approved. The drug was approved like three weeks later after getting a bunch of uh, negative uh, inspection points. Sure. So, um, you know, I, I think you're referring to the, you know, um, um, Bayer's approval of, of, of Lampid. And I think, you know, more than anything, this just shows, you know, that the FDA usually will go above and beyond, you know, to meet the PDUFA date and get drugs approved. So that was a drug for a disease called, called Chagas. You know, it's a, it's a, a infectious disease uh, transmitted by kissing bugs. And uh, the facility was inspected, you know, I think 2018 or something like that. And, and they got a CRL back then. Now they, you know, we submitted uh, the application for the drug and inspection was scheduled for March. But um, it was postponed at the time, you know, because COVID was ramping in Europe and the U.S. It was rescheduled for July 7th, which was uh, exactly 30 days prior to the PDUFA date. They, they missed that. So um, they actually inspected it. Uh, let me see. They inspected it July 20th to 27th. 
They wrapped up the inspection just 10 days prior to the Padufa date. Um, it's resulted in a five item 483. Uh, you know, it was still recommended for approval by the inspector eight days after the inspection. Nine days after the inspection, the review was formally finished. And 10 days after the inspection, it was the Padufa date, the FDA approved the drug. So now I, I think this just shows that the FDA really goes above and beyond to approve those drugs, bring them to market, and can be very, very flexible and very, very quick. Um, so, you know, that, that was one case that gives me quite a bit of confidence that the FDA will make it happen here. So with, with that, we should probably, you know, sort of wrap up Lysosel because this has yep. been going on for, for quite a bit. I, I think what's most likely going to happen, in my opinion, you know, there's always risk. It's possible that the FDA can inspect. It's possible that the FDA will find uh, issues, you know, in the 483 that Bristol-Myers can't address. And it's possible that, you know, that um, we get a CRL here or that, uh, you know, that the response from the FDA will drag beyond uh, December 31st. But I think the most likely outcome, and I, I give this a 75% probability, is that the FDA will inspect prior to the Padufa date, in fact, the next few weeks, and then that they will ultimately approve the drug prior to or on Padufa. I think that's still my base case. Uh, and I think there's, you know, the 25% where this doesn't happen, I think you still have a 50% chance that, you know, the FDA will miss the Padufa date, but they will try to, you know, um, but they will ultimately give a positive decision by end year, which is really the deadline for the CVR. Yep. So you have about six weeks of wiggle room there. Of course, you know, we have, we have Christmas, but I think you still have a lot of wiggle room there where the FDA, you know, could send an inspection team and sort of try to make that approval happen prior to year end. Which, by the way, also matters for, for the FDA because they always have their statistics, you know, and their annual uh, statistics where they're always, you know, proud of, about, you know, where they always talk about how many drugs they got approved, what sort of the approval rate was, and, you know, they met all the Padufa dates, et cetera. It's also very important for them to show that COVID is not impacting bringing life-saving drugs to patients. They've talked about this a lot over the last six months. And missing the Padufa date because they can't inspect in COVID is a very bad look for the FDA. They have not done it yet once. So uh, uh, it seems very unlikely to me that that's going to happen. Before we get into Idacel, I think we should spend probably five minutes on the incentives behind the CVR. It's the most asked question usually. Is the Let's do incentives. So I have a lot of questions on incentives at the end. Why don't, why don't we do that there? Because I, I do think some of the stuff with IDSL comes into play with the incentives. But okay. let me just, so Dan said 75% this is approved by Padufa, 50% uh, it's approved in the, in the 25% it doesn't happen, 50% it's improved before the year end. We'll round up and say he said it's almost 90% that this is approved by year end. Where would you put your odds? I'm at 90%, a little bit different than he is, though. I'm at 80% by Padufa, which, by the way, I'm haircutting for no really great reason. Uh, I was at 90% by Padufa before last week, uh, which is just statistically what breakthrough designation drugs get, what major amendment drugs get. Um, uh, this is, they get approved 90% of the time. Um, I'm not even looking at this specific circumstance, which I think is a, 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 an approvable drug on its own merits, just statistically. Um, so I'm at 80% by the Padufa, and I'm at a 10% chance that it happens between the Padufa and end of year. The remaining 10%, 5% chance they get rejected, 
and a 5% chance it goes after December 31st. So I'm a 90% chance of it Perfect. happening at the end of the year. Let's turn over to IDSL. Dan, do you just want to walk through IDSL real quickly and uh, what's going on there? Sure. So IDSL is, uh, is also CAR-T treatment. It's for multiple myeloma. It's, uh, it's, it's uh, you know, a last-line treatment for um, those patients who will be first to market um, you know, in, in this specific indication. So I, I think, you know, there's a lot, people have concern, you know, concerns that the lysosel is fruit to market here, you know, those concerns um, don't really apply. The clinical data, you know, safety and efficacy wise is certainly good enough for an approval. I didn't see anything that would give me concern. Uh, but I think, you know, what happened with, 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 with IDSL that was a little bit surprising is that uh, I believe it was uh, submitted in, in, in late March for yep. approval. And then in May, uh, received a refusal to file letter where, you know, the FDA uh, refused to review the inspection and, you know, told Bristol-Myers to uh, resubmit. And, you know, I, did, we, we can and we will probably, you know, try to uh, sugarcoat that. But really, you know, it, it, it is concerning that, that, you know, a company of the size of Bristol-Myers, um, you know, ended up in a situation that's, you know, quite rare and quite embarrassing for any kind of, of, of you know, respectable drug manufacturer where the FDA just simply refused their application. We could talk about that. I mean, basically, the idea behind an RTF, it runs the gamut of the worst thing that could ever happen to what they claim is this. So basically, when a, when a company files a new drug application, the FDA has 60 days to accept it. And they don't usually care too much about the quality of the information, it's the quantity. So the FDA says you have to have this kind of documentation for the CMC, you have to run a phase three trial, whatever the, whatever the volume is they demand, they expect it to be there for them to review the application. What Bristol-Myers claims happened was they left out a large chunk of documentation relating to the CMC module of this application. And the FDA said, we can't review this application because you forgot to give us the documents. Bristol-Myers claims that they were supposed to give them the documents during the review process, not before the filing. So to take a step back, early May, well, let's do the timeline. End of March... IDSL gets submitted to the FDA, end of March. Early May, Lysocell gets a major amendment that Bristol-Myers discloses was also for documentation related to CMC and quote-unquote preclinical stuff. They never got into more detail than that, but it, it was a documentation related to CMC. The FDA said, you gave us so much information, we're deeming it a major amendment so we can have three more months to analyze it, okay? That was the beginning of May. Then just two weeks later, they get a refuse to file for IDSL saying you left out so much documentation relating to the CMC module for IDSL. You have to refile. There's a school of thought that both of these things are the exact same problem, that Bristol-Myers did not have the feedback on the Lysocell major amendment when they submitted the application at the end of March. And thus, they made the same mistake twice. And the FDA this time gave Bristol-Myers a refuse to file because that was the quickest way to turn this application around and get it approved as soon as possible for patients. They could have done it two ways. They could have accepted the application and then deemed it a major amendment 
and it would have extended it three months anyway. In fact, this probably saved a little bit of time by doing it this way. So investors are very concerned that one had a major amendment, which is actually a positive if you look at the literature, and one had a refused to file. This CVR was going so smoothly. The stock, it was trading at $4.50 at the beginning of May and of April. Ozanamod was just approved, and both of these drugs were considered complete shoo-ins. Now, fast forward to the end of May, the CVR went to $2.20 after uh, Idacel got its refused to file from $4.50. People thought, what's going on here? Both these drugs had these big hiccups, and nobody understands why. Fast forward to today, Idacel has been resubmitted. The FDA has not accepted it yet. They're going to accept it in the next two weeks. Fingers crossed. The FDA, from our understanding, has never given a back-to-back RTF in the history of the FDA. There's really no risk, in my mind, of them not accepting this application in two weeks. One risk some people point to is they have to give it priority review. If it doesn't get priority review, then the application uh, won't be reviewed in time for the March 31st deadline. Again, we've looked at 100 uh, breakthrough designation oncology drugs. 100 out of 100 got priority review. And this is first to market for a very unmet need. I put it at literally a 0% chance it won't get priority review. But that's the next catalyst for IDASL. In the next two to three weeks, the FDA is going to formally notify that they accept it. I don't expect the stock to go up a lot on that. Maybe it goes up 10 to 20 cents, but it's just a milestone that needs to happen. Um, Dan? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. I think, you know, pretty confident that we'll get it accepted. I'm pretty confident that, you know, in, in normal times, I would say I'm 98% sure that they will get priority review. I think you have to acknowledge that, you know, that there's some theoretical risk now with, with COVID out there and, you know, that the division potentially being backed up that it could get, you know, standard review. Um, but I, I, I think that risk is very minimal. It's, it's more theoretical in my mind because even if you look, you know, at the, at the vaccine work that's being done, it's not really being, being done by the oncology reviewers mm-hmm. you know? and, and we're concerned about with liza cell it's not the oncology reviewers being pulled it's just that the people that in, inspect the plants being pulled so i think you know the oncology division is, is working pretty pretty normally perfect i also think it, it says it says it's terrible precedence precedence for them to have a breakthrough designation drug that actually is first to market to not give it priority review is basically all not all but acknowledging that they are not bringing drugs to patients as fast as possible. That's the opposite of what they're trying to convey, that they're still operating just as you know normal. I would like to point the other major risk in the security, this is it's 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 part of this story, is mm-hmm. because Idacel got or refused to file, that means that their Padufa date is going to be sometime at the end of March. This is a risk that's going to exist until it gets approved, and it's what follows. If Idacel gets a major amendment, just like Lysocell got, it pushes the Padufa out past March, and the CVR is a goner. Now, Lysocell got a major amendment. So you might think, well, there was a decent chance this happens. I mean, if one of these CAR-Ts got it, maybe Bristol-Myers screwed up on this one. So my answer to that is the following. When Bristol-Myers got the refused to file letter, what happens is, is they get a they get a long letter, and every uh, part of the uh, 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 dossier that they uh, that they submitted um, gets critiqued, and they say specifically what is missing in this package. Um, usually, 
drugs don't get refused to files, but they do miss, they are missing things. Look what happened with Lysocell, it was missing things and they had to submit more stuff after. It's my belief that because they got this kind of early look into what the FDA wanted from this refuse to file, it took them over 10 weeks to refile uh, this application. I think they submitted everything under the sun, uh, every piece of documentation they have, and there's really nothing left of a, of a materiality that the FDA could ask for to then necessitate a three-month uh, extension. Now, the skeptics and the cynics, which will come up to with incentives coming forward, will say Bristol-Myers purposely left out stuff. They purposely left stuff out so that the FDA could have a major amendment and they could save $7 billion and not have to pay out the CVR. And we'll get to that if you want under the incentives. But I, I, we're going to hit incentives. Just anything else on IDASL? I, I mean, I, I want to be conscious of time as well, but anything else we should be hitting on IDASL here? All I'll say is every expert you speak to, you can go call 100 oncologists. Everyone will tell you it's an approvable product. We used to get odds from 98% to 99.9%. Yeah, um, they have some competitive issues with some drugs in the pipeline from Johnson and Johnson. It might have some difficulty from a commercial standpoint once Johnson and Johnson's drug gets approved. Six months, three months, nine months later. But as far as approvability from a clinical perspective, nobody will tell you this drug's controversial in any way. Dan, anything from you? Yeah, so uh, you know, I think the main problem with Idacel is that the timelines are, you know, sort of, sort of, um, very, very tight, right? So. Yep. To do for date, should it get you know accepted and get priority review, will be before March 31st, but you know, probably what is it one or two days ahead of that. So, if there are any you know delays, inspection related, or if there are any uh, you know, or if there's a three month extension, the, the CVR is probably toast. You know, I think one has to acknowledge that. That having said, I, I very much agree with, with Matt, you know, that the, the clinical data and safety and efficacy wise is, is uh, very much approvable. CMC is uh, easier than, you know, for Lysacel because they, they don't have this complicated extra step where they would separate, you know, CD4 and CD8 cells. It's much more similar manufacturing-wise, you know, to, to the already approved CAR-Ts, so that the first-generation CAR-Ts, I will say. And, um, you know, they had this, they went through this RTF process, so they, they know exactly what the FDA wants to see CMC-wise in terms of documentation. That's, the, that's positive as well. And then, you know, I think um, the last thing that I wanted to mention is inspection-wise, I don't know where the vector is being manufactured, but at least, you know, the product itself is being manufactured in building S12 in, um, in uh, uh, New, Jersey. Was New Jersey. Union City. Yeah, it is in New Jersey, but what's, what's, what's the town Summit. called? Summit, New Jersey. Correct. Summit, New Jersey. So, you know, I think that's, that's a three-hour drive from, from the FDA's headquarters. So I think Unlike, you know, uh, the Lysacel facility that's located in Washington State, I think, you know, the inspection there should be much easier to schedule logistically. And, you know, I also don't expect, you know, the FDA to be back-to-back busy with, you know, uh, COVID vaccine plant inspections until March. So I think the risk there is is smaller. You know, I think, um, you know, I'm 80% plus on it getting approved by the deadline. There's some risk around the three-month extension. There is some risk. You know, we don't know what's going to happen. I want to be fully transparent. We don't know what's going to happen, you know, with COVID in the winter. Yep. It, it is a hypothetical risk, you know, that we could end up in a situation that's similar to where we were, you know, in March of last year. And if that's the case, and maybe even, I don't know, a summit in New Jersey inspection could be risky. 
But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm pretty confident that this drug will get approved. As well, well, the good news about Lysos, excuse me, Idacel, I can't believe they had to name these things so close to each other. The good news about Idacel is it is mission critical. There is no way anybody would argue that that's not a mission critical drug. It's first to market for a very unmet need of dying patients. So even if COVID is rampant, according to the FDA guidance in July, that gets inspected, period. I mean, that's what the, that's what the guidance says. Yeah. Um, uh, I feel very good about that being the second one uh, uh, with, the, with a shorter time frame. Um, yeah. No, that's for So let's switch to management inspect, incentives, right? Because when I see this and I see a major amendment, a refuse to file all this, you know, and, and the timeline is really creeping up on you. I, I look at this and I say to myself, hey, you know, I've seen this happen with CVRs before, right? If, if the drug's approved March 31st, the company owes $9 billion, $7 billion, $10 billion, whatever. If it's approved April 1st, they don't owe anything. Like the, the incentive is there for the company to just try to push back that filing just a little bit because then they get to keep several extra billion dollars, right? And they still have drug approval. So why do you guys feel comfortable that what's going on here is, you know, Bristol just kind of messed up once or twice. But it sounds like the same thing they messed up in both drug filings versus Bristol is actively trying to game the system to get approvals just beyond when the CVR will play out. And I'll let either of you start. I have a lot to say about this. I know Go Dan. Ahead, Go ahead. I think Dan's got a really good angle from his uh, his time at uh, HBS, and uh, he could talk from that perspective, from talking to other executives about incentives. But um, there's two there's two things I'd like to I'd like to uh, discuss here. So the first one is every action Bristol has taken has the, has been the exact opposite of trying to not pay this drug. So uh, pay the CDR, excuse me. So first they filed Idacel at the end of March. Uh, the guidance was for first, first half of 2020. I believe, Dan also believes, they probably rushed the filing at the end of March so that they would have a full year to get this approved by March 31st, 2021, so that they would have the cushion for a major amendment if it came. They did it within days of the deadline. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing is when Idacel got the refused file in May, they could have said that day, we're shocked, the files are terrible, we need to have a type A meeting with the FDA, we're not sure when we're going to refile this thing, we want to make sure it's a bit, we're very careful next time. No, they didn't do that. They said, this is easy, we are going to get this refiled by the end of July. Why is that important? If this got filed the first week of August, the CDR is probably dead. But they said they're going to get it done by the end of July. Guess what? They filed it by the end of July. So, you know, a cynic could say they're doing this all for lawsuits, but they had a pretty easy out. I mean, they got to refuse the file, which is one of the worst things you can get. And they could have said they really want to make sure they have all their I's dotted, all their T's crossed, and they want to be with the FDA, and they wanted to take their time. So that's the first half. But the second half reason, or the second bucket of reasons why I believe uh, they uh, can't not even won't, but can't sabotage this, is if you take some time to look at all the people that are working on this project, it's in the dozens. And most of them, virtually all of them, are ex-Celgene. And when, you, uh, when they, co- they consummated the merger, every Celgene employee down to you know, the janitor that owned Celgene stock or had Celgene options got CVRs. Uh, I believe for employees, they're all non-tradable because they're all part of their stock packages or whatever. And the entire Juno team uh, is all, Juno, by the way, is a cell gene unit that is now Bristol-Myers unit. We refer, to, we refer to Juno, we're talking about where Lysosel is made. Yep. Uh, they all have CVRs. 
I actually wrote down the names of the five most senior Bristol Myers employees um, that are going to be overseeing LISO sale and the, and, the, and the regulatory process. And the five most senior employees are the CEO of Bristol Myers, of course. Um, he's, of course, from Bristol Myers, not from Celgene. Uh, the second employee is the CFO of Bristol Myers. He came from Celgene and has CVRs. The third most important employee is the CMO, Chief Medical Officer. He's brand new from 2019, did not come from Celgene. The next employee is the Executive Vice President of Hematology. His name is Nadim Hemed. He came from Celgene. He oversees all CAR-T. And then every single employee below them is all virtually all Celgene. So in order to sabotage this in any way, you have to believe that either the CEO of Bristol-Myers or somebody below them somehow orchestrated with multiple employees, not just one, but multiple employees all the way down to whoever's submitting the regulatory file, some way to sabotage it, just enough to sabotage it so that they either, well, either get rejected, if you think you're that cynical, or just to somehow push out the deadline so they get approved in April or May. If they did this, I believe this would be a felony, definitely from a financial perspective, because you're committing financial fraud, trying to save $7 billion. But can you imagine the headline risk of trying to push out a breakthrough designation cancer drug for the most sickest patients because you were trying to save a rounding error for a $150 billion company? You might go to jail and the headline risk would be so astronomical, you would definitely lose your job. And we're talking about dozens of people that have to be involved. And all it would take was one of them to be a whistleblower about it. Yep. Oh, and mind you, they also all own CVRs and they all are incentivized to see this get done on time. So I just think it's ridiculous that people think there's a chance of a misalignment. Uh, Dan, why don't you tell your little story about uh, the CEOs you, you talked to? Go ahead, Dan. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree, very, you know, um, pretty much everything that was said. And, you know, if you're, uh, I always, you know, I, I think we as investors, we always think, you know, that, that dollars or cash are, you know, the most important um, thing for, bio, you know, for biotech or big pharma CEOs, you know, maybe as a biotech investor, you think pipeline is the most important thing, but um it, it is not. You know, I, I, I was very fortunate. I, I had the chance to to talk to several, uh, you know, executives of, of large U.S. publicly traded um, uh, pharma and, and biotech companies last year, and uh, you know, the answer that I uniformly got when I asked them about what their biggest worry is was headline risk. You know, they they worry that there's some kind of scandal. Is worried that there's some kind of drug pricing headline, price gouging headline. This is the kind of stuff that those CEOs worry about, you know, on, on a daily basis. And I think, uh, you know, for, for them, if you look at how they're incentivized, it makes perfect sense, right? Once you sit in that seat, you get your $20 million plus compensation annually. You know, there, there's no big upside for you, you know, if you save $5 million somewhere, but there's real downside, you know, if you, if you, if you lose that job. Because, it's you know, it might not be that easy uh, you know, to, to, to find another job that, that, will, that will pay you equally well, right? So I think that's that's very clear. Uh, you know, I was also, I, I did some some uh, digging on, on, you know, people that worked with Bristol-Myers uh, CEO before to sort of um, learn how he thinks. And, and you know, what, what, what I universally heard back is that he's very risk averse. So, you know, and in, 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 in fact, that's probably the reason why the CVR 
exists in the first place is you know that he was worried about overpaying you know in case of the, the pipeline not working out i don't think he you know he would a kind of personality that would you know on purpose try to sabotage that you know burn down the house to collect fire insurance um you know seems just, just seems very very remote to me and you know it's also that those applications are now at the fda you know in, in the hands of the fda so it's will be very difficult for him to or anybody else uh, to really delay it unless you know you think you would on, on purpose uh you know do something in, in, in the in the in the washington facility you know like plant those rodents in the in the uh cafeteria or something like that uh you know or or try to somehow you know make make the, the idacel package in purpose you know, on purpose incomplete or you know try to like working some kind of problems there into the CMC section, which I, I just don't see how you would be able to do that in, in you know, such an organization, much to what Matt already, already said. The, uh, the head IDASEL, see, I, couldn't, I can't find the Lysocell uh, head reviewer, but the IDASEL reviewer is available, a Google search for IDASEL, LinkedIn, uh, Bristol-Myers, and you'll find her. And uh, she's very uh, experienced. She's in charge of the entire regulatory process. And guess what? She came from Celgene. So she's been spending two years working on this. Um, she probably owns CVRs. And I'm pretty sure she's not going to take a phone call from the Bristol-Myers CEO saying, can you please mess this up just a little bit so we could save some money and also kill some people for a few months? Um, I just don't see it happening. I, 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 you know, I don't have my Q hat on. Uh, <laughs> The only other thing I'd add is there's a line in the uh, Bristol's proxy that says, uh, I believe it's, I'm kind of glancing at it, our CEO, uh, the incentives for the whole executive manager team uh, are designed around the pipeline. And they those include milestones related to the CVRs, which I've actually never seen a pharma proxy or CEO or executive team get compensated based on a CVR's payout before. So I my think- push, My pushback to that is it's a rounding error for him. He makes like $20 million a year. It says it's 10%, it's in a bucket of 10% of his long-term compensation. Doesn't say how much of the bucket is that. So I think that's extremely minor from a perspective of uh, him being compensated. For Man, I'm, I'm trying to be a bull here. I'm trying to know, help you out to, over here. I wanna be honest about what I think is, 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 is the reason why they won't screw this up. And it is it because Giovanni's gonna make money off of this. Well, yeah. guys, uh, this has been great. We're running really long, so I think we're going to wrap it up here. I, I, I do want to give you guys a point. Matt, anything you think we miss or anything you wish we had dived in further, or do you think we were pretty well, good in the, our limitation? The reason why this opportunity exists, Dan touched on it a little bit, but there's over 750 million shares outstanding of this. Uh, right now at $2, that's a billion and a half dollar float. Um, at $9, it's $7 billion. This is a very peculiar security that most people can't own, most funds don't want to own. And if they do own it, they own it in very small size. Yep. And there's a very small group of people that can absorb this, which is why I think you have the opportunity. Um, in fact, it's the kind of thing to where when it's doing well, when it was $4.50 and everything was going well, I think a much larger group of funds is interested in it. Oh, this is kind of a safer security that's going to go from $4.50 to $9. Now at $2, the house is on fire. It seems very easy to see how this can go to zero and the opposite is happening. You're having people sell before it goes to zero and every person I, per I know personally that owns this was already way too big in it and has not added when it went from $2 because they're already overweight and they have no room to add. So I just think it's, that's the opportunity. This opportunity exists for that reason. 
No, no reason else. If this was just a hundred million dollar security or a fifty million dollar security, I think he'd be trading at three or four dollars, maybe three or three fifty right now is my guess, not two dollars. Dan, anything else from you before we wrap this up? Yeah, um, yeah. I think you know, what, I, what I wanted to add is uh, it's it's rare that you have those securities, you know, where uh, you know it can go to zero. And I think that's what scares people, frankly. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was wondering, you know, if if it had like a four dollar bond component to it, so. You know, if the CBI was $6 right now and, you know, the downside would, would be trades down $2 to 4 and, you know, you have a $7 upside, I was wondering, you know, where people would look differently at it and sort of value it differently. I'm pretty sure they would. The thing is, you know, it's the zero that is scary. It's also, you know, quite illiquid. As Matt said, there are 700 million shares outstanding. Most days it trades, you know, 2 or 3 million shares. So only a very, very small fraction, you know, of the shares changes hands. Uh, I think the bets have been mostly made. Uh, I, I think going forward, the CVR, you know, and any kind of news can be incredibly volatile. I think you have to know that if you if you're you know considering to invest in it, uh, especially you know I, I think if if it heads to a situation where you know we're heading towards Padufa Day or it is Padufa Day, and we haven't heard back yet, you know, and there are hundreds of millions of shares that you know change hands one, one way or another, I think, you know, it could be potentially extremely volatile security. You know, I think you're, if you're a portfolio manager and, you know, as that November 16th date or March 31st date starts creeping up and you say, oh, this might be a zero, it just takes one guy hitting the, get, get me out of this and it can be very volatile. Wait, uh, Andrew, let me add this one thing for 30 seconds. Yep. Next event investors, uh, besides the sell thing, which I think is not a real risk, basically we're looking for a lack of news because since... Bristol Myers has told us they're only going to uh, most likely only going to notify us when it's approved, rejected, or delayed. I believe that if the FDA hasn't inspected within 30 days, within 25 days of the November 2017 PDUFA, we will get a press release or an 8K from Bristol Myers saying the FDA has notified them they are going to miss the PDUFA date. If we don't get that press release, I think by definition, that means they have inspected because there's no way they can approve it uh, by November 17th. Yes, they might be able to do it two weeks prior or three weeks prior. But as we get closer to that Padufa date, no news in my mind is good news. Um, and, uh, you know, on Thursday, I don't know when you're going to be airing this, but on Thursday, uh, the CEO of Bristol Myers is doing a fireside chat that's public. He is not the one that was on uh, Tuesday's uh, fireside chat. That was the chief medical officer. So I'm sure he's going to be asked about this again, and you might be in for a wild ride with what the CBR does based on what his comments are. So it's nonstop, you know, where the next data point can come from. Yeah, Perfect. not for the faint hey, off. Guys, I knew you guys, uh, you know, I, I followed this. I knew you guys knew more about this, but this has been just the amount of, uh, you know, there are so many things. The due diligence here has been outstanding. Uh, we, hopefully we have you guys back on in December or something. Lysocell is approved and we're just worried about the IDSL thing. But uh, <laughs> this has been great. I'm going to put your Twitter handles in the uh, the link so everyone can, every, all the listeners can be sure to look at that and follow you guys there. Hope to have you guys back again. This has been great. Thanks so much for coming on. I should say, I have a locked account and don't usually accept new follows, so don't be feel like I'm disrespecting you if I don't accept Dozens of listeners are going to be angry with you, Matt. But <laughs> Matt, Dan, thank, thank you guys so much, so much for doing this. Andrew. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you thank for you. doing it. Take care.